Well, good evening to you all. It's good to be with you. Uh, Good to be looking at the book of Numbers again. It's been a while since we looked at the book of Numbers, uh, just for one reason or another. We haven't met on Sunday nights recently. Uh, So I'll just remind you what we've been talking about. Uh, Last time, we looked at some specific commands that God had given concerning specific scenarios uh, that would arise in the life of the people of Israel. The one that we most recently looked at was the case of those who were unclean and therefore could not take part in the Passover meal. Uh, The Passover meal was so important, though, that God gave a special provision that if you were unable to take it at the allotted time, you could be allowed to take it a month later and still partake of such an important meal. Uh, Numbers chapter 9, where we're looking at today, Uh, takes a break from those specific commands. It's more just describing an event. Uh, And it's describing the day that the tabernacle was set up, which we've already looked at, but we'll see another element of it this evening. So we'll be reading from Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. And it reads, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you have chosen to communicate with us and to reveal to us everything that we need for salvation, for eternal life, uh, for godliness, uh, for love for you in your word. Uh, We ask that you would open our eyes to read your word this evening. uh, That you would open our hearts to receive the truths that you have for us. That you would give us the strength to see your word, to see the commands that you give us and to repent from our sin where we fall short of your commands. Help us to focus our minds on you tonight, that we would have no distractions, but wholeheartedly Pay attention to you and to the words that you have given to us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. 
Well, there is a grievous error today, uh, sadly, that many people make. Um, many non-Christians, many unbelievers, many atheists. And the mistake is that they think that God is like us, that God is like man. Uh, they make the same mistake of the wicked man in Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, uh, it says God is speaking to the wicked and uh, condemning them and describing their flaw and their error. And he says, you thought that I was one like yourself, one capable of sin, um, one flawed. And there have been many throughout history uh, who have made this same mistake. I've had a friend recently who, uh, when my brother was sharing the gospel with him and pleading with him to repent of his sins and uh, believe in Christ and put his, have his eternity rested and um, secured in heaven, uh, not hell, his response was, well, if I go to hell, I'll just escape. He thought that God was just some prison guard some flawed prison guard who you could outmaneuver or outthink or escape from. Some think that God is capable of sin, that he's like us in that regard. Uh, we hear this many times when people charge him of being a homophobic. That is a sin of our present age. Um, some charge him with being murderous, uh, being bloodthirsty, uh, as sinful men are. And you'll hear many people levy these charges against him as if God were someone who is capable of sin. Others believe that God is helpless like we are. We as humans are quite helpless. In Bowling Green, we've been reminded of that recently as we've suffered through a pandemic, of course, that we in ourselves had no power to stop. We suffered through a tornado that we could not mitigate simply with our words. Uh, we we're helpless against that. And many people see God as the same. He is just a bystander looking at the destruction that mankind is wreaking, and he's just not able to do anything about it. He, he wishes he could, just like we do, but he doesn't. And that is not the case. Uh, God is anything but helpless. He is the one who orchestrates all things and has all power. And again, these errors would likely come from non-believers, from atheists. Maybe they're trying to disprove God or place doubts in Christians' minds as to the character of God. But uh, as believers, we can still fall into pits somewhat the same, where we just forget how separate God is from us, how not like us He is. Uh, that can lead us to when we read in Scripture of the Trinity, perhaps. It can be strange, because we think, well, we are humans. We don't have this three-person existence uh, like God does. Uh, so we can think, well, that's strange. I don't really understand that. And we believe, we sometimes can err in thinking that God should be more like us. Um, that if he were more like us, would be easy, uh, he would be more easily understood. In our passage today, uh, Numbers 9, 15 through 23, we see very clearly that God is not like us. Uh, we see this description of him in a cloud. Um, I'm not sure about you, I'm pretty sure though. Uh, none of us go around in clouds of glory. Uh, not many of us are flying through the midnight sky in clouds of fire either. 
Um, but God is not like us. So we have to be uh, accepting of that fact, and we have to indeed look into those truths that God is not like us and see the glory in that. Um, Paul even mentions in Romans 5 how God is not like us and how that is so great for us because he would love us uh, while we were sinners, but we would not love sinners ourselves. So it is glorious that he is not like us, and that is one of the truths that we see very clearly in this passage, that God is not like us. Uh, and one of those reasons, again, is in his, the description of him in a cloud. Um, so that is what we'll primarily look at today, is this idea of the cloud descending on the tabernacle. What does this cloud mean? What does it signify? What does it show us? And the first thing that we'll look at is that the cloud shows God's presence. The cloud shows God's presence. In verse 15, it says, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle. Now, I just want us to think about that. It says the cloud, not a cloud, not a random cloud. This isn't just some thick fog that you would wake up and see on a morning. Uh, over your house where you can't see in front of you. This is a particular cloud. This is a cloud that we have seen before in the Old Testament. If you look at Exodus 13, 21 through 22, uh, this is when the Israelites are leaving Egypt. Pharaoh has given the command for them to be released, and they start their journey towards Mount Sinai. And Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22 says, again, speaking of the Israelites when they were released from Egypt, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So this is not any new cloud. This is not something that we haven't seen before, but this is the cloud that God identifies with. In Exodus 13, again, he says, the Lord went before them in this cloud. So what we see here when the cloud is descending on the tabernacle is it's somewhat like moving day uh, when you go to, when you purchase a new house. You get all your, the furnishings have already been furnished. The ark uh, of the covenant is in there. The table for the lamps, the bread of the presence is in there. And what we see here is that the house of God is being indwelt by God. We don't call a house that someone doesn't live in their house, really. They may own it, but they don't dwell in it. Here, we see the tabernacle, the house of God, becoming the house of God because God descends on it and dwells in it. And it says that evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. Now the question sometimes comes up, uh, how is God omnipresent, but at the same time in one location, as we see here? The tabernacle, or the cloud is not over the whole earth, but it's particularly at the tabernacle. How do we reconcile this and God's omnipresence? And answering that question in great detail isn't really in the scope of this message tonight, but um, suffice it to say that God is omnipresent, 
uh, in Second Chronicles 2.6, when Solomon is contemplating building a house for the Lord, building a place for him to dwell, he uh, reflects and he says, but who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? It is true, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is larger than the universe. Uh, he does not have to travel places to be there. Uh, he is everywhere at once. But there is a very real way that his presence, his special presence, is at one time in one place. Um, for this, the cloud is descending on the tabernacle, and a, a, big port, a big part of this, a big reason for this, is that it would be a visible picture to the nations that this is the nation that God is with. They can look at this cloud or this pillar of fire over the tabernacle, and they can say, this is the Lord's people. Um, the, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Assyrians, uh, so on and so forth, they did not have this special presence with them. Uh, surely God saw what they were doing. Surely God knew what they were doing. But he is not with them in the same way that he is with the Israelites in this case. So this gives us a good time, a good opportunity to just really meditate on what's going on here. So we see the Lord is descending to be with his people, to be on his house. And I think it's worth asking, why is God doing this? Is, uh, have the Israelites deserved this presence of the Lord? We can clearly see no. When they were at Mount Sinai, they abandoned God fairly quickly in making a golden calf for themselves. Uh, they couldn't see God, they couldn't see Moses, and they turned from the Lord. Uh, that is before this happens. So surely they have not deserved for God to dwell with them, for the holy God to dwell with sinful man. Is there some military advantage that the Lord uh, gains from the people of Israel? Of course, we would have to say uh, no. We see an angel of the Lord wipe out hundreds of thousands in a single night uh, with no need for military might of the earthly kind. Is there anything that necessitates God to dwell with this people in this passage, to descend on the tabernacle and be in the midst of his people? Is there anything that compels God to do this? No. The only thing that compels God to do this is his own good pleasure and will. If he wanted to, he could cast off the Israelites right now for the sins that they have committed. But he doesn't. He dwells with them. He descends. Then he condescends uh, to them. What a grace that God extended to this people that he would dwell with them when they did not deserve it. In fact, did everything that he that did not deserve, his grace, his mercy, his goodness. And the same is true for us. Uh, really, we need to think of ourselves in the same way. If we ask ourselves, why did God save me? Why is his spirit dwelling with me now? Is our answer, because I have something to offer you? Is our answer because we are we're perfect. 
uh, why would God not want to be with us? Why would he not want to extend his grace towards us? Uh, That's not the answer. The answer is that God, out of his own good pleasure, delights to save sinners. He delights to dwell with his people. That is something that we need to reflect on. It's such a precious truth uh, that God is not some distant God. Uh, He is not a God who remains far off. He is not a God who abstains from anything having to do with sin. Uh, That He indeed draws near to us to wash us clean, to cleanse us. And that is uh, something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, Throughout the book of Numbers, we will see, and we've seen, God's holiness, His transcendence on full display. Uh, And that is so good. That is an aspect of God that surely is uh, preached on too little today, is His holiness and His righteousness. But we we must be careful to go too far into that, where we see Him just as a holy judge judging the wicked. He is that, but that is not all He is. He is also the saver, um, the redeemer of the wicked, uh, of those who repent and believe. And we need to uh, focus on that. We need to appreciate that and acknowledge that and praise the Lord for that, uh, for His good will and good grace towards us. It is necessary to point out that this, the Lord descending in the cloud to, on the tabernacle, is not the pinnacle of human relations with God. This is not what we are all looking forward to, getting to heaven and just being in the proximity of a cloud, uh, being at a distance from a cloud. That is not what we are looking forward to. Uh, we have something much better, uh, much more glorious and praiseworthy And we see a glimpse of it in Isaiah 4, uh, if you'll turn with me there. Uh, Isaiah 4, beginning in verse 2, Isaiah is speaking prophetically of the day of the Lord, of the day when the Lord returns, the day when his people are saved in their entirety and in fullness. And he says, In that day, the branch of the Lord, uh, a term for the Messiah, the Lord, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment, and by a spirit of burning. And pay attention to this. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. What is it saying here? That the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion a cloud And look how this cloud is described. A cloud by day. The shining of a flaming fire by night. This is the exact same language that we find in our passage today. Uh, The cloud that is the glory, the presence of God. But what do we read? It's not 
just isolated to a single location. It's not just over a tabernacle or a house or a temple. Or what does it say? It is over the whole site of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies. So the Lord is taking his presence, his glory, and he's not remaining distant from his people, but he is spreading this canopy over the whole people where all the people can be in the presence of the Lord fully, uh, as we read in Revelation, the final city. This is what we have to look forward to. We will not remain at arm's length from the Lord in heaven, in the new creation. We will be so close, uh, so near to Him. The The cloud and the pillar of fire will be all over the people of Israel. This is what we have to look forward to in the new creation, is being with our God with no separation at all. Uh, That is a glorious future to look forward to and to hope for and have longed for. And it shows God's good plan uh, for us. That this cloud, even though it is his grace to dwell with his people just in the tabernacle, he will show us so much more grace and so much more of his glory on that last day. So that's uh, the cloud showing God's presence and the imagery associated with it. The next thing, the next observation about the cloud that we can make is that the cloud is God's guidance. The cloud shows God's guidance. Uh, If you read verses 17 through 23, you'll see much repetition. Um, One commentator described it as almost poetic, the repetition that you have there, the structure of the passage. It's very repetitive. It communicates. uh, And what it communicates is that the people of Israel move with the Lord. The way they know when they are to depart, the way they know when they are to camp and settle, is when the cloud moves. When the Lord moves, that is where that is when they will go. Where the Lord settles down is where they will go. And they do this uh, regardless of time. Uh, if the cloud is in a spot for a day, they stay there a day. If it's there for a week, they stay there a week, a month, even a longer time. It says they keep the charge of the Lord. It goes without saying but there is no GPS at this time. Uh, I think we can all say that, that with a good amount of certainty. Uh, Israel and his sons, Jacob and his sons, apparently knew how to get to Egypt from Canaan when they went to escape the famine in the book of Genesis. But this people, uh, this generation of Israelites, we really don't know if they knew the way back to the land of Canaan. This generation of Israelites had never been there. This has been some 400 years since Joseph and his family had moved to Israel or to Egypt. So how were they to know how to get back to the land? The Lord had to guide them. The Lord had to show them the way. And he does so with this cloud. And this again Uh, is such a precious truth to look at when people accuse the Old Testament God of being a totally separate deity from the New Testament God, where the Old Testament God is only full of 
wrath and anger and vengeance. And the New Testament God is all love and ponies and unicorns and stuffed animals. Um, we need to remember when those charges are levied, we need to remember passages like this. The Lord guiding the people shows such an abundant mercy. Um, and if you look uh, in the Old Testament in other places, the Old Testament authors recognize this. If you'll turn with me to Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, we'll read verses 16 through 21. So in the book of Nehemiah, where we pick up in chapter 9, the people have had a great conviction of sin. Uh, They have discovered uh, the law of the Lord. They are reading it, and they are pierced uh, to the heart. They realize that they have not been following the Lord as they should have been. And they hold a great assembly where they fast and they worship the Lord. And in the middle of it, some men get up and offer up a prayer to the Lord. They're praising him for his goodness. But one thing they do also is they recount this wilderness generation. They recount the Lord's dealings with them. So picking up in verse 16, that's where we're picking up. And listen to what they say. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, You and your great mercies do not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. What do these people notice? What do they observe about God's leading the people by the pillar of cloud, by the pillar of fire? in this passage and the rest of the book of Numbers and the rest of the journey to Canaan. They recognize the Lord's grace. The pillar of fire, the fire did not go out one night. God did not say, you have sinned so much that I will cast you off. I will um, depart from you and not lead you any longer. He did not do that. But in his great mercy, he endured. He persevered and he Um, continued to lead them through the promised land. And uh, it's likely that in Nehemiah they're reflecting on Exodus 13, the passage that we already looked at, uh, where it says, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The Lord did not abandon them. He did not depart from them. When their sin, when their rebellion was so pronounced that they would not go into the land of Canaan, he does judge them. But in the entire journey up to it, he does not cast them off. Uh, but he endures them and shows mercy. This is not the action of a God who's only vengeful and vindictive, I think we can say. Uh, this is the act, the loving act 
of a God who delights to show compassion, right? who delights to show mercy and grace. So what is made abundantly clear in this passage, in the repetition, in uh, the emphasis on the people following the Lord, is that the only way that they will get to the promised land, to the land of Canaan from Egypt, is the same way that they reached Mount Sinai, which was by following the cloud, by following the Lord and keeping the charge and the command of the Lord. And the case is the same for us. Uh, we've been looking through First Peter on Sunday mornings with Dallas, and there's a way that he describes the Christians of this time in the last days as a sort of wilderness generation. We are on a trek through the wilderness uh, to our eternal home. And the only way that we will get to our final home, uh, to the new Jerusalem, where the covering we saw in Isaiah 4 is the, is the presence of the Lord over all the people. In contrast to what Isaiah says in chapter 25, which is that the covering over all people is death. Uh, we see in that passage that God swallows up death forever. So it's almost like he switches out the covering over all people, which is death, with the covering over all of his saints, which is the presence and glory of the Lord. The only way we will get to this home and this eternal destination is by following the Lord. We do not follow him in the same way as the people did. We don't have a cloud of fire or a cloud of uh, cloud outside this building that we just follow into our workplaces every day. That's not how we operate. Now that's not how God operates now. The way we follow Christ now is by following his word, by following his command that he gave to his 12 disciples. Follow me. Follow me. We follow him to the cross to believe the gospel to believe our sins are forgiven and to delight in His grace. We follow Him in carrying the cross, uh, that we die to ourselves every day, uh, killing sin and denying ourselves. And we follow Him in holiness, that we might live lives glory, glorifying to Him and worthy of the grace with which He's bestowed us. You can imagine how it would have been for the people of Israel to go to the land of Canaan without a cloud. They would have been stumbling in the dark, uh, stumbling over themselves, having no direction, no guidance. Uh, how frightening that would have been, and impossible. We see that the Lord sustained them in so many ways. Um, he sustained them by giving them food, uh, manna from heaven. He broke several rocks, several mountains, and made streams for them which they could drink from. If they had not had the Lord to guide them, they would not have made it through the wilderness. But he did not depart from them. He did show them the way. And it's the same for us. Uh, the passage has been mentioned many times, but in the word of the Lord, in the scriptures, God reveals everything that we need to live lives of holiness and lives worthy of him. He has told us how to run the race, to use Paul's language, how to endure. And he has told us that through his word. The call for us 
is to obey his instructions. We see the people of Israel obeyed his instructions. Uh, they kept the charge of the Lord whenever God moved in the cloud, the people of Israel moved with him. For us, in Scripture, when we see commands, when we see instructions and calls, the call for us is to obey, to follow him through this wilderness, that we may make it to our eternal home by his grace and by the strength of his spirit. So brothers and sisters, let us obey and follow our king to our final destination where we may delight in his grace and glory and mercy for endless days. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for the grace that you show us in your word. That you show us that even though we are sinful, even though we are deserving of total condemnation and judgment, you show grace towards us. You do not cast us off for our sin, for those who believe in you, but you draw us near to yourself. You fashion us in the image of your Son to look more like him and to lead more holy lives, lives more pleasing to you. What a God you are that you would choose to bestow such grace on sinners. Thank you for who you are. Please guide us through your word. Please give us such a desire to read your word, to know your scriptures, that we would know how we are to act in our day-to-day lives, seeking to give you glory in everything that we do. Please aid us by your spirit, uh, strengthen us, to put sin to death in our bodies. Strengthen us to follow your commands and to love you with our heart, soul, and mind. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I guess we're